Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been around Wildwood the last several weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a series based out of the book of Ephesians, this great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that existed in the city of Ephesus. And as he wrote this letter, what we've seen over the last number of weeks is we've seen a number of things. We've seen that that, uh, God has packed within every Christian every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has packed those things inside of us. And, and Paul prayed that, that those blessings that God has packed inside of us wouldn't merely just be something that would reside in our intellect, but be something that we would experience at a deep level. These blessings that he gives to us freely by his grace, that we merely receive in faith. These blessings that include the reconciliation of people who are very different, people like Jews and Gentiles reconciled in one body to God. Last week, we, we got to the beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians where we saw that one of the other blessings we have is the ability to tether our lives to Christ, to keep Him at the center even as we are experiencing suffering and difficulty in our life. And we've walked through all of this over the last five Sundays. And if you would like to go deeper in any part of our study of the book of Ephesians, I would invite you to go to my blog, wildwoodmark.com, and on that blog are a number of resources that I'm posting each week that tie to the passages that we're going to be looking at that Sunday. So if you'd like to go deeper in a personal Bible study, we would invite you to go there and to check that out. But today, in our time, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And before we open up those uh, verses together, I want to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you that as we gather here today that uh, we have an expectation, we have a hope to hear from you. What a tremendous privilege that is, Father, to be able to hear from you today. Father, we don't need to hear from me, but we desperately need to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me just to be out of the way, that your truth would be communicated clearly today. And I pray that the Spirit would not only enlighten our, our hearts Uh, so that we would understand, but also that it would empower our inner being that we might not only understand this, but we might walk in it in the power of your Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would be honored um, as we read your Word and that you would help us to follow it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you might have seen on the the, the slide there, this is a 12-week series um, in the book of Ephesians. Um, And this is now the sixth week. There are six chapters in Ephesians, and now we are finishing chapter three. And so we're actually halfway through our study of the book of Ephesians. And, you know, that's that's significant because I I was looking at that this week, and my, my first thought when I saw that, I was like, whoa, we're halfway there. Whoa, oh. Paul's gonna be living on a prayer. Um, Hey, if you didn't get that, you slept through 1986, all right? Uh, Trust me. Anyway, hey, uh, what you have in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is you have a prayer. You have a prayer that Paul prays. And and the prayer that Paul prayed back in chapter 1 was a prayer for enlightenment. It was a prayer for the eyes of their heart to be opened so that they would see and, and comprehend and understand the amount that they've been blessed in Christ. 
But when you get over to chapter 3 in verse 14 and following, the prayer that Paul has is not so much a prayer for intellectual understanding. It's not so much a prayer for enlightenment. It's a prayer for enablement. He wants them to do something with the truth that he's been unpacking in this letter. And he knows that spiritual empowerment is necessary in order for us to live into the things that God has called us to. We, We know that as well too, don't we? You know, I was thinking about that and, and thinking about maybe a picture that would help us to understand that. It took me back to my time in college. And when I was in college, one particular spring break, we were going to go skiing with uh, some friends. And ski trip, college students, we had to pile into a number of different vehicles to get there. And most of the vehicles that people were crawling in were big, powerful vehicles. They were Chevy Tahoes with V8 engines and beyond, four-by-four travel, headed to the mountains. For some reason, my little Honda also made the cut, and I'm trying to follow behind this big Chevy Tahoe headed towards California. Well, my, you know, my little car had a four-cylinder engine, not a, not a V8, but I'm pretty sure it actually was powered by some kind of lawnmower engine as I tried to keep up. And as we headed across Oklahoma, as we headed across Texas, as we headed across the plains of Nebraska or of Colorado, you're we wondering where I was going. Uh, as we were headed across the plains of Colorado, I was able to keep up pretty good for most of this trip. But then as we got deeper into the mountains of Colorado, what happens? The road gets a little steeper. And that 6% grade began to create separation between me and them. There was no way for my vehicle, which was underpowered, to keep the taillights of the Tahoe in view because I simply didn't have what it took to keep there. Eventually, they get separated, they keep going, and eventually we just kept driving west until we found something that looked like a ski lift and we parked beside it. Thankfully, it was the right place. Um, But that was an experience that I had uh, going skiing. And you know what the, the reality is when we think about our Christian lives, we have a 6% grade. And Jesus has way more than a V8 engine and the path that he is calling us to climb. And it is impossible for us to keep his taillights in our vision because we are simply underpowered with the standard equipment we were born with. Ephesians chapter 2, we saw, would inform us that not only do we have just a four-cylinder engine and a V8 need, but that four-cylinder engine has no gas. There's no way for us to, to keep up in the spiritual life. There's no way for us to live out what Christ has called us to in our own strength. And, and we know this, right? You've come in here today, and, and at some point in your Christian experience, if, if not daily, if not hourly, if not minutely in your Christian experience, you've been faced with something that Christ is calling us to that you feel inadequate for. That's just the reality of this life. We have a need for spiritual empowerment. We have a need for spiritual enablement. We have a need for a whole new engine to be placed within us. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. That's exactly what he provides for us through the working of the Holy Spirit, filling us up so that in this new engine, we might be able to follow Christ in this life. And that's exactly what Paul is praying for in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, and see how you and I can tap into the spiritual enablement of God that is necessary for us to live out the Christian life. We're going to look at 
Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. As we read these verses, would you please stand? Paul writes, and this is what he says. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in these verses, we're going to see a couple of things today. The first thing that we're going to see is this. Paul wants us to know that we can pray for power. We can pray for power. We see this in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. We can pray for power. Now, we see some similarities in chapter 3, verse 14, the way it begins, and the way chapter 3, verse 1 began. Look at how chapter 3, verse 1 begins. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. We saw that last week. But then he comes over in verse 14, and he begins the same way. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Well, what's going on? What is the reason? What's the connection between verse 1 and verse 14? Well, it's as if Paul begins chapter 3, verse 1, getting ready to tell us something. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he's getting ready to continue that, but when he said a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, it's like it triggered something in his head. And what follows from verse 2 all the way down through verse 13 is really a parenthesis. The area between the two for this reasons is a parenthesis. It's Paul explaining why he was a prisoner and how he was dealing with that suffering in the name of Christ. That's a parenthesis in his conversation. What that tells us is the for this reason Paul is beginning to pray is tied to something back in chapter 2. There's something that he communicated in chapter 2 that is for this reason. We might read it this way. Chapter 3 Verses 1 through 14 really would go this way if you take out the parenthesis. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, bow my knee before the Father. Paul is, is praying, and he's praying for something that he had mentioned in chapter 2. I think that what we see in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians was that Paul mentioned this terribly radical idea that, that two people as different as a Jew and a Gentile, two people that couldn't spend five minutes together around a dinner table, the fact that they were somehow going to spend an eternity together in the presence of God, that seemed like a pretty wild thought. And not only that, but it created a lot of controversy. And not only that, but it was really difficult to imagine actually loving somebody that you had hated for all of your life. As Paul outlined the, the amount of unity that was created for them in Christ in the church, 
There had to be an Ephesian shaking their head saying, boy, it's easy for you to say, Paul, this is really difficult stuff that you're asking us to do. You're asking us to reconcile with our enemies. You're asking us to love people that have discriminated against us all of our lives. It was, it was really tough for them. And so Paul responds for this reason by praying. He wants to pray for a spiritual enablement to allow them to do what seems so difficult that he described in chapter 2. He says, for this reason, and then he goes on, he says, I bow my knees. Bowing knees is a picture of what? It's a picture of prayer. We're familiar with that. Maybe you do that as a family. Maybe you do that with your children, where you get down on your knees and you pray. It's, when you even see a symbol of somebody on their knees, you just think of prayer. What's interesting, though, is that the Bible is not specific on just one posture in prayer. There are a number of postures that are available in prayer. The Bible talks about, at times, people standing when they're praying, at times, raising their hands when they're praying, at times, laying prostrate on the ground when they're praying, at times, sitting while they're praying, eyes open, eyes closed. There's all kinds of different examples, biblical examples of prayer. Incidentally, we, we stood earlier when we read God's Word. Is that the only way we can read God's Word? No, we can read God's Word in all different kinds of ways. There's all different examples in God's Word for how we can do these kinds of things. But, but here in Ephesians 3, Paul specifically says that he's bowing his knee. Well, what does that indicate? I think it indicates a little bit of the fervency that Paul had in prayer. Not only was he going to go in prayer for the Ephesians, but he was going to drop to his knees. It was that urgent a request. You ever get really bad news and you hit your knees? there's just something about that that, it, that, that posture that expresses the level of need that you feel. Paul hits his knees. He hits his knees because he knows that the enable what they need is acute. It's, it's intense. They absolutely need God to provide for them if they are to do what he has called them to do. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, what is that? He's giving us who he's praying to. He's praying to our heavenly Father. Now, the phrase that follows that, this from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that's a difficult phrase for us to, to grasp, difficult phrase for us to understand. But in the original language, this is really the heart behind that phrase, that our heavenly Father is the prototype Father. He's the, the, the first Father. The, the true meaning of what it means to be a Father is found in our heavenly Father. This ought to be incredible encouragement to you if you come from a family where your father was absent, where your father was abusive, where your, your father was negligent in some way, shape, or form. There are many people that have that as a part of their story, and it's difficult for them to approach God as their heavenly father because they want to make their heavenly father in the image of their earthly father. This passage says, when we go before the Lord in prayer, we go before our heavenly father, we're going before the prototype father, the father who is always loving, always present, always providing always caring, always compassionate, always right. Paul bows his knee and he goes before that God, that heavenly Father. And what does he ask? Well, the middle of verse 16 kind of gets to the, to the heart of it. He asks that they would be strengthened with power through his Spirit in their inner being. He asks that they would be strengthened with power with his Spirit in their inner being. Now, he's not asking here, he's not praying a prayer 
for externals. He's praying a prayer for internals. He's praying a prayer for strength, not on the outside, but on the inside. He wants them to be strengthened there. And I think this is an important distinction for us to see because so many times our prayers are merely about external things. Someone's sick, we pray that they would get well. Difficult circumstance has cropped up, we pray that it would resolve. Whatever the, the, the situation, we, we, we pray for merely an external solution to that circumstance. And yet here, Paul prays for something different. Here, Paul prays for something on the inside, not the outside. Here, he prays for an inner strengthening of our inner being. You ever pray that way? I mean, if I was going to do like a, an audit on my prayer life and look back over the last 50 prayers that I prayed, um, a number of them would be merely about external things. Now, now don't, don't hear me wrong. It's not bad for us to pray for external things. It's not bad for us to pray for physical healing. It's not bad for us to pray for circumstances um, that are going on in the world. It's not bad for us to pray for those things. But certainly our prayer life shouldn't be limited only to those things. As we pray, we, we should not just pray for externals, but we should pray that God would strengthen us with His power in our inner being. See, Paul had no expectation of getting let loose from prison. We saw that last week, but he could be fully expectant of God working in his inner being to strengthen him, to do what would otherwise seem impossible. He prayed for a strength on the inside. And the strength that he prayed for, the power that he prayed for, would come at the beginning of verse 16 according to the riches of his glory. What a, what a powerful thought to say that God would bless us according to his riches. Now, there are a lot of different ways in which people can give us things, especially people of, of great wealth. Sometimes you can be given something out of their wealth, and sometimes you can be given something according to uh, their wealth, or you see evidence of that in the world. I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned earlier in this series that I'm a basketball fan, and and uh, NBA, uh, something I follow closely. Well, there's a story in the NBA uh, during the last month about a team being sold. The Los Angeles Clippers were sold to Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of uh, Microsoft. And, and you remember, anybody remember what the price tag was on that? A billion dollars, over a billion dollars for the Los Angeles. I mean, those of us who are sports fans, a billion dollars for the Clippers? Wow. Um, that's a change of events. But a billion dollars paid for uh, or, or willing to be paid for the Clippers. And I always wonder, like, where does that money reside? Does, does Steve Ballmer, like, have a piggy bank at home and he had to tap that open and it all fell out? Is it in hundreds? Is it in bills I don't even know about? Is it, is it in offshore accounts? Is it in onshore accounts? Is it in stocks and bonds and property? I have no idea. A billion dollars he had access to in order to be able to buy the Clippers. That's a lot of money. Now, you think about somebody with those kinds of resources that they have. If Steve Ballmer were to give $50 to something, he would be giving out of his riches. That's, that's not a, a bad gift. He gave out of that. $50 is not a, not a bad gift to give at all. But if Steve Ballmer were to give not just out of his riches, a, an amount that he might not even notice was missing, if he was to give according to his riches, what would that look like? million dollars, $10 million, $100 million, to be blessed according to 
the riches of Steve Ballmer, is a, is a sum of money that you and I will never know about. And here's the picture of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. The God of the universe desires to give us strength in our inner being for the things that he's called us to. And you know how much strength he wants to give us? He wants to give us strength according to his riches. How many riches of spiritual blessing does the God of the universe possess? Unlimited. Way more than a billion we think of the power that God desires to use within us, to strengthen us in our inner being, to do things that seem impossible to us, to love the person that seems unlovable, to forgive the person that seems unforgivable, to encourage the situation that seems impossible, to resist the temptation that seems insurmountable or inevitable. That power of God is available to us because he is giving it to us according to his riches. And as we're dependent upon Christ for those riches to unfold in our lives, this amazing thing happens. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17. Now, this is interesting that he says that because we saw a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 2, where Christ is residing within his people, that all of us are like stones put together in a living temple where, where Christ is residing in this world, where his presence is known in this world. Here he says that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. The, the word is different. It's, it's not just that he's present, but it's that he's at home. He's, he's dwelling when we're depending upon Christ, there's a level of intimacy, a level of fellowship, a level of closeness that we have with him that, that goes beyond what is a mere presence, but, but to some kind of close connection to him. Let me give you an example. Think about your own house for a minute. Um, who, when they come over to your house, uh, has access to anything in your house? You know, think about this. Somebody comes over, and it's their first time in their house, in your house and they want to drink a water, what do they have to do? They have to say, hey, Mark, um, can I have a glass of water? Why would I need to ask that? Well, because I don't know where the cups are. I don't know if they use filtered water or unfiltered water, and I don't want to offend them in some way about what I'm going to drink. I just don't know the drill over there. Um, it would be rude to just take his water. I, for all I know, it's well water. He's only got a cup left, and I'm going to take water from his children. I need to find out these things. I don't have that kind of access so I have to ask him for permission to have a cup of water. But imagine Mark's children. Do they have to ask for a drink of water? Well, maybe if they're not tall enough. But once they get tall enough, they really don't. Why? Because they have access. They're, they're at home in that house. Think of the, the, the neighbor kid down the street who spends so much time at your house that they just they have refrigerator rights now. They can just go get out of your refrigerator whatever they want, whatever they need. It's that level of closeness and fellowship. What we see here with Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith is that as we spend our lives moment by moment dependent upon his power and resources to strengthen us in our inner being, to do the things that he's called us to, we find ourselves with Christ at home within our lives. There's a level of intimacy and fellowship and closeness that comes from a life that is spent dependent upon him. 
And the more dependent we are upon Christ, the more at home we feel with him and he with us in our hearts. He says that you may have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. Then he continues, also as we're we're dwelling with Christ, that we're rooted and we're grounded in love. Two different analogies given there. That the love of God is something that that we are rooted in, is, is is a picture from agriculture. Think of a tree. What do the roots of a tree do? They go down deep. And what do they do when they go down deep? They find nourishment that they will pull through the rest of the system in order to give life to the tree. You and I, our roots go down into the love of God so that from that love we might find nourishment for our souls. We might find hope for life. We might find strength for the the difficult things that are in front of us because we are rooted in a God who loves us. It also says that we are grounded in that. The, The image moves now from agriculture to construction, saying that we are grounded in God's love is to say that that. Our foundation is found in Christ. I mean, if you want to go high with a building, you got to go deep with a foundation. You might notice we're in the process of replacing our church sign out front, and the, and the, 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 the size of the base of the sign that we just knocked over was big because the sign was, was heavy. If we want to have a big, heavy sign, it had to have a, a large base underground. We, if we want to grow tall in our spiritual life, we must be grounded in God's love. We're established in it. We have the ability to relate to God and to deal with life because we're relating to God and dealing with life with a God who loves us. We're rooted and grounded in love. And then he continues. He says, as you're rooted and you're grounded in this love, He says that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, the idea there is that this love of God that we're rooted and we're grounded in is so immense, it is is so enormous that it almost defies measurement. The ESV that I'm reading from here says that we might comprehend, but really a better translation might be to say that we might apprehend. If you were to apprehend somebody, it doesn't mean you understand everything, but it means that you lay hands on it. You get a hold of it in some way, shape, or form. The idea here is that we would, we would apprehend. At some level, we would begin to understand just how much God loves us. We would explore that, and we would try to understand it, how wide and how deep and how, how high and, and all of that stuff the love of God is for us. And this language about exploring God's love and understanding the height and the depth and all that, is, this is the first time God has ever used that kind of language. As a matter of fact, all the way back in the book of Genesis, a very similar thing is, is said by God to Abram, uh, who would become Abraham, who would have many sons, had many sons, had father Abraham, who would proved to be this channel through which the world would be blessed. And, and in chapter 13 of, of Genesis, this is what, is what is said. God has promised him a land, and now God is providing it. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, verse 14, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you 
and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent, and he came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What's happening there? God is saying to Abram, I'm giving you this land. We know this as the nation of Israel, the land of Palestine. And God's saying, this land will be your land. I'm, I'm giving it to you. This land will be your land where your descendants will populate and through which the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as he, he gives him that land, he says, explore it. Walk around. See what's there. And that's the natural thing you would do. If, if God said, hey, you know what, this, this land is yours, these 50 acres, these 100 acres, these 1,000 acres are yours, what would you do? You'd want to go check it out. You imagine Abram that first time walking through going, hey, look at that olive tree. That olive tree's on my land. Isn't that awesome? Look at that olive tree. And he'd walk over here and look at, that, look at that sea. Look at all the fish in that sea. Think of all the people that are going to be fed by the fish in that sea. That sea is my sea. Those fish are on my land. Look at what God has given us. He's given us fish to eat. He's given us olive trees. He would look at, at the river and he'd say, look at that river. That river will offer protection for us from our enemies the east. He'd look over and he would see the Mediterranean Sea on the edges and he'd say, look at that sea out there in the distance. That's where we'll, we'll build ships and we'll be able to trade and, and export not only goods and services, but also the good news of what God is offering humanity. See, what Abram was going to do as he moved to Mamre, he, he set up shop, he was exploring the land that God had given him. And here's the picture in Ephesians chapter 3. The natural thing for you and I to do in light of the depth and the height and the width of, of the blessings of God that we've seen in Ephesians but are found within all of the New Testament, God says, hey, move here. Move here. Explore this land. See how wonderful ways that I've blessed you. Become like a, a spiritual Lewis and Clark and explore the land that I've purchased for you. When we read the Bible, we ought to walk around and go, look at that, look at that forgiveness. Look, look at what the forgiveness that God has offered to me. Look, look at the presence of God that he's, he's offered to be with me forever. Look at the hope of eternity that he's set out for us. Look at the spiritual strength that he offers to strengthen me in the midst of my, my flaws and my failures. Look at all of that. We can never fully comprehend all of it, but we can at least apprehend part of it and draw strength from it for our everyday. Does that make sense? God wants us to dwell in his blessing. He wants us to understand, at least in part, how much he loves us. He wants us to measure it regularly. Now, this hit home with anybody today? I want you just to think for just a second. What'd you walk in here with? What'd you walk in here with that you need some spiritual strength for in your inner being? I walked in here with plenty. What'd you walk in here for that you need spiritual strength for? Not just that the circumstance out here would change. Not that you can just pray that this would, this would work out or not work out or or whatever, but I mean spiritual strength in your inner being, that you could respond to a situation as Christ wants you to respond, 
that you could forgive as Christ wants you to forgive. You could love as Christ wants you to love, even people that seem difficult to love or to forgive. You could resist temptation that seems inevitable in some way, shape, or form. What is it that you walked in here with that way? And, and the question is, when's the last time that you prayed for some power? Power, not just a little bit of power, not double-A power, power according to the riches of the God of the universe. That's what we have available to us, men and women. Why is it that we spend so much of our time distressed and not on our knees? I'm talking to myself when I say that. What do you do? My question for you is this. Are, are you praying for power? And if, if you need inspiration to pray for God to empower you in some way with power in your inner being, go become a spiritual Lewis and Clark and explore this territory and see the blessing that God has offered you from which you can draw as you follow him. First thing, pray for power. Second thing, expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 begins very simply with a reminder of who we're connected to. It says, now to him. In other words, if it weren't for him, I mean, we've seen this throughout the first half of the book of Ephesians. We see it throughout our Bibles. If it weren't for him, we would expect the expected. We would deal with what we could accomplish, which is not very much. But he points out that we are connected to him. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And he can do all of that according to the power that is at work within us. Here's, here's the idea. He's saying, stop budgeting God's power. Stop telling God what he can't afford. Stop telling God what he can't do. Think of the last major purchase that you had as a family. Maybe it was a house, maybe it was a car. What, what did you do when you made that purchase? Well, one of the first things you would need to do is you need to make a budget. Even more important than, than what you're going to buy, you need to know what you're going to spend or what you're willing to spend. Because here's the deal, you know, if, if, you, if your budget is $6,000, you can still buy a Lexus. It's just going to have 500,000 miles on it. But you can still buy it, but you had to know your budget first when you enter into that, that process. And that guides your decisions. It guides what you ask for when you show up at the lot. You don't show up at the lot and say, you know what I want is I want the fastest, prettiest, most fully equipped car. You show, if you did that, it'll take you and it'll show you a car that there's no way that you can afford. What you, what you need to do is you need to show up and say, hey, I'm, this, is, this is what I'm looking for based on the parameters that I have. And, but, but the problem is, this is what we do in our spiritual lives. We budget God. We budget him. We say, you know what, God, I, I'm going to expect my, my expectation. I'm going to operate life the way that I, I think it should be operated, the way I can accomplish on my own power. And so I'm not going to ask you to empower me to do blank because that's clearly beyond the level of your riches. We wouldn't say it that way, but that's what we do. And what Paul is encouraging us to do here is stop budgeting God. Stop telling him what he cannot do or failing to ask him for what you would not expect because he is the God who can do infinitely abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. 
What a wonderful God that we serve. It so encourages me, it so encourages me to know that this God wants to do this, what we just read here today, in your life. Because I know some of your situations, I'm looking around the room, I, I know some of the things that are going on in your life and your family, and, and I, I wish I could change the circumstance, and I, I wish I could do all this kind of stuff, but you know what this passage reminds me to do is to pray to a God who is able to do, not just in somebody else's life, but in your life, what you most need. He's able to give you spiritual strength, and he's got ample resources to spare. It's my prayer that we would expect God to do what is otherwise unexpected. Now, he ends this this whole thing by basically just breaking off into a statement of praise. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. It's like he he just jumps to his feet and begins to shout all this out. Uh, This is, Bible scholars would call this a, a doxology. You might remember doxology like a, a song that you may have sung in, in church growing up. But a doxology is a statement of, of praise. But John Stott helps us make some sense of this whenever he says that doctrine leads to doxology. Doctrine leads to doxology. In other words, all of the truths about God that we have seen packed into Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, all of those truths that we see in doctrine are what are the fuel for the praise that is offered to God at the end of chapter 3. And so what I want us to do, as we are now completed with our, our three, first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, is I want us to, to do just what Paul did, and I want us to spend some time just praising God for who He is. I want the doctrine that we've seen to lead us into a doxology of praise to Him, and specifically to focus on the love that God has for us that we are rooted and grounded with. And so the worship team is going to help lead us in that. But before they do, I want to just close our time in prayer. Father, we just want to thank you for the fact that you um, show up in so many ways, Father, and not just to change our circumstances, but, Father, also to give us the strength that we need for every moment. And, Father, I just want to confess that all too often um, I expect the expected. All too often I depend on the four cylinders that I have instead of trusting in the new engine and the full tank that the Spirit provides. And Father, I pray that you would help me and you would help all of us as a congregation to depend upon you and that we would see your power displayed in our lives by responding and loving and leading and guiding um, and, and living a life of righteousness that goes well beyond what we would be able to do on our own. And Father, I I just thank you that all of this is done within a context of your love, uh, that though we could explore it, uh, we can never fully comprehend it. And uh, we pray now that you would help us to sing and from the heart to declare how amazed we are at your love for us. In Jesus' name. Lord, I 